Today's episode is brought to you by Minerva, The Miscarriage of the Brain, from artist, musician, and author of On Hell and Sick Woman Theory, Johanna Hedva. Minerva collects a decade of Hedva's work in texts whose bodies drift and delight in form, poems, plays, performances, and essays. Eric Morse from the Times Literary Supplement writes, Hedva describes, in almost incantatory verse, nocturnal scenes peopled with Greek goddesses and fairy tale witches, whose bodies shed, bleed, and weep before the mute incomprehension of men. Hedva's world is balanced precariously between divinity and void. P.F. Anderson calls Minerva a performance fixed in book form, a live, loud, chaotic, cacophonous, shrieking, whispering, temporal experience. And C.A. Conrad says, reverberations of this book outlast everything else in our ears. Johanna Hedva's Minerva, The Miscarriage of the Brain is available as an ebook, an audiobook, and an illustrated paperback co-published by Sming Sming and Wolfman Books and can be found in all its forms at smingsming.com. Today's episode is also brought to you by Maria Jose Farada's How to Order the Universe, a novel translated by Elizabeth Breyer that Tara Conklin calls a dreamscape of a book. The story follows seven-year-old M as she sets out with her father, D, in his life as a traveling salesman. Enchanted by her father's trade, M convinces him to take her along on his roots, selling hardware supplies against the backdrop of Pinochet-era Chile. At once nostalgic, dangerous, sharply funny, and full of delight and wonder, How to Order the Universe is a richly imaginative debut and a rare work of magic and originality, says Kirkus in a starred review. This quick and quirky book is as charming as it is unsettling, as appealing as it is wise. How to Order the Universe is out on February 16th from Tin House and available for pre-order now. Before we begin today's conversation, I want to announce a long-anticipated new development for the show and also some brief thoughts about today's guest. Since last March, we have been transcribing the Between the Covers conversations. We've been quietly amassing them while we waited for the big website redesign to be finished. And I can happily say that that day has arrived. So if you go to the podcast homepage at tinhouse.com slash podcasts, you can sort the episodes by the ones that have accompanying transcripts. All of the conversations with me since March 2020 are there, and we aim to continue transcribing the new ones as they happen, though there will often be a lag time between the launch of the audio version of an episode and the written version. So head over to the homepage, sort the episodes by genre, fiction, nonfiction, poetry, science fiction and fantasy, or hybrid and indeterminate writing, or now sort the shows by the presence of a transcription as well. Secondly, as many of you know, 
I've been doing an ongoing collective brainstorm with listener supporters of who our utmost dream guests would be for the show going forward. This brainstorm has had a huge effect on who is coming on the show in 2022. And I've also just received some very improbable yeses for this fall as well from this cooperatively generated list that seemed like a dream, but a dream out of reach. So I'm very excited how this process is playing out, both to see how much our tastes overlap, what names keep echoing again and again, and to learn about so many writers that are new to me, particularly international writers, that I didn't yet know about and I'm happy to learn about and reach out to. Prior to starting this brainstorm, back in the early days of the pandemic, when I first scrambled to transition from the radio station to my home for the show, I created my own dream guest list, a short one. And today's guest, Teju Cole, was the first person who came to mind. So probably the only person happier than me today is his publicist, who I would reach out to nearly every year of the last 10 years to see if he might be coming through Portland or if there were any way we could somehow lure him to Portland. Given that Tiju is not only a writer and a photographer, but also a critic and a curator, it is no surprise that what he adds to the bonus audio archive is particularly well thought out, a three-part reading where all three parts speak to and augment the meaning of the others. The first is a reading from John Berger's The Shape of a Pocket. The second is a reading of poet Etel Adnan's thoughts on cave paintings and cave painters in relation to all painting since. And the third is from Teju Cole's forthcoming essay collection, as of yet unpublished, Black Paper, a letter to John Berger. To find out how to subscribe to the bonus audio and the wealth of other content, rewards, and potential gifts available to listener supporters, you can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's conversation with none other than Teju Cole. These stories are about the id unleashed. They're about the wildness contained in all of us. I think stories kind of have some kind of magical effect in the world. I think it's really hard to live without stories. And if somebody tells you, like, this is the way you're going to end up, you're lucky if you can forget that. You know, there's me, and then there's writer guy me, and then there's me working, which is the absence of me. It's just story. Had no idea how to write a novel, didn't know if it would ever come to fruition. Was working at a vet and kind of lint rolling puppy hair and cat dander off myself. They're almost like really shy animals. They will come out of the woods, but you have to stay very still. And you have to pretend like you're not interested in them. Artists tend to like put their fingers in the wounds, in the silences. I believe in the role of literature as a, as a catalyst for dialogue and, and, and new forms of, of thinking. All the stuff I'm interested in is thrown into the washing machine that is my brain and it's put on spin. Today's guest is the writer, photographer, critic, and curator Teju Cole. Cole earned an MA in Art History at the School of African and Oriental Studies at the University of London. 
and later an MPhil at Columbia University. From 2015 to 2019, Teju Cole was the photography critic for the New York Times Magazine, and his column on photography was a finalist for a 2016 National Magazine Award and winner of the 2016 Focus Award for Excellence in Photographic Writing. His writing has appeared in The New Yorker, Granta, and The New York Times, and Teju Cole is currently the Gore Vidal Professor of the Practice of Creative Writing at Harvard University. Cole's work includes the novel Open City, winner of the Penn Hemingway Award, the Rosenthal Award of the American Academy of Arts and Letters, and shortlisted for the National Book Critics Circle Award. What moves the prose forward is the prose, says New Yorker critic James Wood of Open City. The desire to write, to defeat solitude by writing, Cole's essay collection, Known in Strange Things, shortlisted for the Penn Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the Art of the Essay and the inaugural Penn Gene Stein Award, is a collection about which Claudia Rankin declares. On every level of engagement and critique, Known in Strange Things is an essential and scintillating journey. With the notable exception of Open City, Teju Cole's books from his first book, Every Day is for the Thief to his latest, include photographs, but his last three particularly so. Blindspot, a genre-crossing work of photography and texts, was shortlisted for the Aperture Paris Photo Book Award and picked as one of the Smithsonian's 10 best photography books of the year. The Village Voice says, Blindspot is many things at once, both memoir and map of the world, both essay on photography an elegy for the lost arts of looking and seeing, with texts as succinct and enigmatic as shards from an archaeological site. Tejuko also is the co-creator of the collaborative book of image text Human Archipelago with the MacArthur Genius Grant recipient, photographer Fazal Sheikh, who uses photographs to document people living in displaced and marginalized communities around the world. Of Teju Cole's latest book, from the UK's Mac Books, entitled Fernve, photographer Stephen Shore says, many artists have felt the lure of juxtaposing photographs and text, but few have succeeded as well as Teju Cole. He approaches this problem with an understanding of the limitations and glories of each medium, Perhaps in concert with Cole's move from writing that has images to images that have writing, Teju Cole has also moved from being one of the most salutary reasons to be on Twitter, where he composed a short story and tweets, and under the influence of Felix Fenion's novels and three lines, produced short literary news bursts within the 140-character form. He has since migrated to Instagram as the main place for his online image-centered artistic endeavors. Teju Cole's photography out in the world, at large, has exhibited from Italy to Iceland to India. His writing has garnered him a Wyndham Campbell Prize for Fiction and a Guggenheim Fellowship, and he's been an artist-in-residence at Bard College and a Pointer Journalism Fellow at Yale University.
but how best to capture what Teju Cole does in words. Rebecca Solnit says, forms of resistance depend on the culture they resist. In our era of generalizations and approximations and sloppiness, Teju Cole's precise and vivid observation and description are an antidote and a joy. Norman Rush adds, I am sentimental about Teju Cole and think of him as an emissary for our best selves. He's sampling himself for our benefit, hoping for enlightenment, and seeking to provide pleasure to us through his art. May his realm expand. But perhaps using Teju's own words, from Twitter no less, captures it best. Writing as writing. Writing as rioting. Writing as writing. R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. On the best days, all three. Welcome to Between the Covers, Teju Cole. Thank you very much for that introduction, David. Um, It's always a little bit disconcerting to have the list of one's labors and um, uh, alleged achievements um, uh, presented like that. Uh, It's it's both an act of generosity and one that is... um, discomforting, but we can talk about that a little bit more later. But uh, thank you very much for having me on Between the Covers. Yeah, it's such an honor and a joy to have you. And and maybe a place to start is with a quieter, more comforting way you've been a companion for me over the last uh, 10 months of the pandemic. I feel like a lot of your work has been speaking directly to the present moment, whether it be the pandemic journal for the New York Times where you're listening to MF Doom or Beethoven or reading Annie Ernaux or calling your mom in Lagos amidst the daily death counts of the pandemic's early months, or your short story, The City of Pain, which is a fable about a city where the hand of death rests heavily upon it and everyone is sort of an island unto themselves, or you're photographing trees now that you can't go into art museums or your video montage turbulence. And all along the way, these these surprising and helpful gifts of these Spotify playlists that would appear um, lovingly curated in these journeys of different moods as we would follow you, or as I, as I would follow you um, during a difficult 11, 10 or 11 months. But really it feels like all of your work, even your pre-pandemic works, feels like it's speaking into the moment. And I was trying to think about that, why, why that is for me. And I, and I think it's because so much of your work is about questions of who we are beholden to. And I'm, I'm thinking of the opening words in Human Archipelago that go, who is a stranger? Who is kin? What do we owe each other? What in the inferno is not infernal? So I was hoping we could start with your latest book, which is a pre-pandemic book, Fernve, um, which came out just before the pandemic. And if you could talk to us about what that word means for you in general, well, what that word means in general, but then also what it means for you in particular. Well, thank you, David. It, it, it's nice to have the uh, confirmation that as one wishes to 
have been an accompanist that um, that there are people such as yourself who have felt accompanied. Um, I think in moments of crisis, we are looking for the confirmation that we are not um, alone in our experience of the complexity of the world. It was an interesting year to have Fernweh come out um, because this is a book that's very much about considering the world from a position of um, solitude and even isolation. There's something about that book that almost imagines a world without us. Fernweh is a German word that means, well, it's hard to define, but part of what it means is a longing uh, for distant places, a longing to be away from here, right? Um, it's, uh, it's, it's almost like a more metaphysical form of uh, Wanderlust. Um, so that was an interesting book to think with this year because, you know, it kind of confirmed for me the importance of, of creating a, a, a moment of thought and thoughtfulness um, and maybe even silence in the middle of the storm. Um, and, you know, I would say that a lot of what I try to do in my work is to actually hold space that is a little bit against the grain of where that space is being held. Um, specifically with regards to the relationship of noise and silence. Um, where things are rushed, I want to slow down. And where things are noisy, I wish to be conspicuously less noisy. Um, and I think Fernweh represents that. Well, if we think of the ways that Fernweh, the desire to be elsewhere, is the opposite of Heimweh, or homesickness, which at one mm -hmm. point was a medical condition uh, That's right. diagnosed in Swiss mercenaries. Mm -hmm. your, your book is is a visual meditation on your relationship to Switzerland. And it's a place that you visit in several other books of yours. Um, a place you go to, to feel elsewhere, to feel other. So I wanted to start there. You have many reasons why Switzerland compels you, but one of them was following the footsteps of James Baldwin, who went there in the 1950s to an alpine, alpine town with his lover at the time that might not have ever seen a black person before him. And while he experienced being completely othered there and experienced deep racism there, it, it was there that he was able to figure out how to finish his book by having a vantage point from there on the racism of America and how the racism of America functioned. And thus the title of his book, Go Tell It on the Mountain. 
and I was wondering if, if in, if there's something similar for you in this regard, your, your attraction to Switzerland as a place to look down upon one's life for perspective. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. So recently I have been thinking about, um, the operational readiness that is displayed by people who are, for example, in the secret service. If there's a, a figure of some eminence that they have to protect, or if they have to provide security at a particular setting, let's say that setting is a speech or a game or a concert. This is a place where crowds have gathered and there's a main event. And there are two categories of people who are in that space, who are not interested in the main event. It's the people who are providing security because they're looking for the other category of people who are not interested in the main event, the people who are there to, in some way, disrupt it. Mm. An assassination or, you know, uh, some other form of uh, lesser disruption. So while everybody else is looking at the touchdown or is looking at the person giving the speech or listening to the speech, um, there are other attitudes present in the room who actually care nothing for that stuff. They, um, there are other silent presences in the room who are looking for other silent presences in the room. Um, This is a deeply imperfect metaphor because um, I am not fond of the securitized state and its actors. Um, and I don't know that I necessarily associate to any great degree with either the Secret Service or the Assassins. But there's something about their operational attitude that attracts me and it is about being on the same scene as everybody else but not looking at the same thing mm. um, the desire to short circuit the conventional looking that is happening the desire to not talk about what everybody else is talking about or at least to not talk about it in the same way. Um, I'm not talking about just mere obliquity for its own sake, but a kind of commitment to the idea that what needs to be said often does not arrive as a chorus. Um, it arrives out of a stubbornness about digging deeper. D deeper is is wrong. It sounds like self praise. Looking looking different. I mean, not not the appearance of the person doing the looking, but the form of looking that they're doing. Okay. So if I'm in the room where some big event is happening, 
I'm often not looking at the big event. And I often also become aware of other people who are not looking at the big event. Why is this person's attention elsewhere? And if it's elsewhere, where is it? Yeah. Um, the same way the Secret Service can pick up on somebody who is somehow not enjoying the parade, but they're looking very, very serious, you know, and they're sort of, you know, their focus is, is sharpened towards some other purpose. Um, so let's take Fernvey, my photo book. Um, I, I think a lot of the work I, I do that relates to the public is photography. And yet I am still primarily received as, as a writer. So that when a book like Fernvey arrives, that gives you very little reading to do. It's just a one-page um, postscript to it. It's just a book of photo after photo, very silent photos. Um, there's something illegible about that for, for people who have a certain expectation of what they get when they pay money for a book. You can, quote, read Fernvey in 25 minutes. Um, I mean, of course you cannot, but you have to commit to reading it uh, more, more slowly. Um, that interests me. And it also interests me that it's a book about Switzerland, which is not generally high on the list of places that people find interesting. Um, people might think it's peculiar in certain ways, but it is often relegated to sort of it's that place that people's grandparents went for their honeymoon or something. Um, you know, it's ri it's it's rich and it's well organized and boring, right? So it there, there's a there's there's a sort of like preformatted um, consensus that makes it different from somebody saying they did a photo book about Brazil or about India or about places that are in one way or another self-evidently exciting. Um, so I approached this project by, by, by saying, you know, why is it decided ahead of time that Switzerland is not an interesting subject, you know. You know what? Are, what? Are, what forms of interest are yeah. available? Well, I want to. I'm gonna. I'm gonna fill in what my presumptions are around what some of that might be, and see what you think also. Because you mentioned other writers like Joyce and Lenin who go to Switzerland and make their most radical works there, or. Mm -hmm. the ways Switzerland has affected Flemish and Dutch Renaissance painting. Mm -hmm. um, but even though I'm not thinking from Switzerland, in thinking about Switzerland, like in the conversations I've been having with my wife Lucy around preparing for this conversation, it feels like it, it's clarified some things for me about seemingly neutral things I do every day that nevertheless uphold 
white power in the United States and the ways in which the state tries very hard to hide the ways that's happening from me. Um, And I've been thinking about Switzerland as a neutral country and the way it, it benefits from this in its own self-regard, but also in the ways it's exported this idea, the virtues of being a country that is neutral, a safe haven, a place mm-hmm. that transcend that transcends and is and looms above all of the conflicts on the, on the continent, mm-hmm. um, and that they went at the same time that they have this image of themselves. There's all this stuff unseen under the surface. You That's you right. you point to in some of your writing the just the uh, deep way they're involved in the global arms trade and the just the number of people mm-hmm. that are are murdered uh, it's uh, or maimed from in a, in a way that uh, enriches Switzerland but we could go back to world war 2 when w- mm-hmm. when they were really um uh putting themselves forth as neutral and yet going to great lengths to make sure Jews, even Jews who were some of their depositors, couldn't get into the country as a safe haven, asking the Germans to put a J on their on their passports, for instance, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but also making it impossible for uh, families of Jews who'd been exterminated to get the money that had been deposited in Switzerland. And then laundering most notably laundering all of the stolen property and gold from the nazi regime on behalf of the nazis and then when no one wanted to buy nazi or german gold after the war Mm. getting rich off of selling the gold even the gold from the teeth of jewish and other holocaust victims corpses um and i wondered about i mean that's not boring but it's no. it's made invisible. So this that's boring right. country that's very clean and pristine, and I just made me wonder about this in relationship to whiteness and um, the way the mechanics of of the way whiteness is upheld. If something about the extremity of what Switzerland is in this regard how, is a helpful thing to meditate on to look at our lives otherwise. Yeah, that's that's all very well said. Um, and you're right about the extremity of Switzerland as part of its attraction. And in fact, part of what attracts one to doing a project in India or a project in Brazil is that these also represent forms of extreme in the world. You know, if you go to Lebanon, that's a different kind of extreme. And if you go to New Zealand, that's a different kind of extreme. That certain nations sort of pop out of the ordinary for reasons of their history or geographical location or terrain. Um, so Switzerland is, is indeed a deeply uh, troubling place um, because that neutrality is, is, is false. Um, and I think I touched on some of the um, political intensity of being in Switzerland um, in, in my essay that you alluded to, um, uh, the, an essay called Black Body that, that was in response 
to um, James Baldwin's essay, Stranger in the Village. I went back to the same village in Switzerland that he had been in. And it was very illuminating to think about Switzerland in these ways. Um, with, with Baldwin's help, um, with the help of history, and, you know, and, and this was a long essay that I wrote basically about following in Baldwin's footsteps in the summer of Ferguson, right, in 2014. Um, thinking about European racism, thinking about American racism, and how both have evolved um, in the decades since uh, James Baldwin was there. I think that was a start for apprehending what it was I was experiencing in in Switzerland, a place I have spent, you know, many months in uh, over several years. Um, but when I came to doing the photo book, I, I, I think that vision had actually deepened. I, I, I don't think it was enough for me to say that, and this place that, you know, is so keen on itself is obviously um, <laughs> troubled. Right. Um, I think that's a first step. I, I, I don't think I, th I don't think that's enough. I think in the photo book I was also trying to deal with with certain other material facts, such as the fact that it's it's very beautiful. Um, I've been I've had the good fortune of traveling a lot. I've seen a lot of places. Um, and Switzerland is one of the few places that is consistently more beautiful than its postcard images. Um, it is something about the Alps. It is something about the infrastructure they have around the Alps, um, about the quality of the light, um, uh, and about their own um, attitude of care towards their environment. It is very, very beautiful, and that beauty does not exhaust me. Far from, you know, boring me or anything like that. And I've spent a lot of time in Italy and in Germany, both of whom border Switzerland. Um, and Switzerland is really just something else, just in terms of sheer physical beauty. Um, and I wanted to testify to that as well. My experience, my own experience mm -hmm. of that beauty. Um, but I also wanted to think about my larger relationship to Europe for reasons of work and the friends I have and my own interests. It is a place I go to a fair bit, you know, um, I'm from Nigeria and I go to Nigeria almost every year and I go to Europe every year, different countries in it. And I know what it's like to be a black person in Europe, at least a traveling black person, if not one who's living there and employed there. Um, and Switzerland has its falsehoods, but the rest of Europe has monumental and very distressing falsehoods. Um, and so if we talk about how Switzerland has, you know, 
sort of there's this genteel racism that is there. Um, but it's nothing compared to what I experienced in France. I think for a lot of um, white Americans, um, Paris is a splendid and enjoyable place. Um, for me, Paris is an emotionally very, very difficult place to be in because all the signs of a kind of very stubborn white supremacy defined in fundamental terms, all those signs are visible. And there's a large and uh, very visible uh, second-class citizenry that are of a different color from white. You know, there's uh, black people, there's brown people, there's North Africans. Um, When I'm in London, at least every time I visit for my first few days there, all I can see really is... um, this colonial power that is mired in nostalgia for that and the ways in which it continues to treat people as if they are colonized, even in England itself. Um, When I go for a hike in the Alps in Switzerland, I'm just a guy going for a hike in the Alps. It's, it's a monumental relief. Um, and the places where a black person can go in this world that are majority white places and yet not exhaustingly oppressive are few. Um, and that was part of what this book was quietly doing. It's saying, I speak only for myself, but this is one place where I can breathe. Yeah. You know, this, if I, if, if, if I made this book and it was about Romania, if it was about Greece, if it was about France, if it was about the Netherlands, it would be a very, very different book if if i was making a book about the french landscape it would be a very different book from me making a book about um the swiss landscape because if i was doing the french thing i would be aware at every moment of myself as a post-colonial figure and as a figure with an unstable status an unstable an unstable status in 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 that countryside well i i want to um i want to introduce another thread through much of your work also and that's the the question of of blind spots both mm-hmm. the physical reality and the sort of metaphorical reality of of blind spots and and as i listen to you talk about what's visible in France and what's invisible in other places. Um, it feels to me like it connects in some ways to neutrality and, and to innocence also. Um, Cause anatomically we have blind spots where the retina meets the optic nerve and there's no 
rods or cones. So we would normally see, if our brains weren't doing anything, we should see a, a large black spot in our vision about the size of an orange held at arm's length. And I talked about this with Elisa Gabbard in our conversation, but our mm. brains hide the blind spot from us. I don't want to go too far with an analogy that that's what Switzerland's doing, but the brain mm-hmm. is is filling in the blind spot with extrapolated data from mm-hmm. from our actual nearby vision. But I, I was thinking of it in terms of something Mitchell S. Jackson said in his memoir, Survival Math, where he talks about the impulse to preserve one's innocence in the face of living. I, I wondered if you could talk about blindness Blindness in terms of what we cannot see versus the complicity we have around what we refuse to see. Mm. That is such a, a lovely and, and thought-provoking um, question. Um, and I enjoyed listening to your conversation with Elisa Gabbard. I remember that moment in it. Um I mean, I think the first thing I'd like to say is that, I mean, we, we talked a little bit about Switzerland and, you know, I would like to say that none of this is about Switzerland, really. And it's actually not really about novel writing or doing genre experiments. And it's not about photography, right? What we are is humans in the world and there's something that's human in us that's calling us to live it well and live it fully some of that we do with the aid of societal cues some of it we do by descending into more profound regions of the self. Digging down and finding the courage of one's convictions. And for me, this is an interesting question. Why should one have convictions? Why is it not enough simply to survive? Why isn't it just a grab-all-the-candy-you-can game? You know, where does this need come from to think the world and live ethically with it? And yet, for me, this is the... um, groove underneath all the activity that one might wish to do. You know, it's for sure, it's a philosophical thing, right? It's a search for wisdom. But it's it's funny that it's very hard to talk about what it is we're really up to, what we're really trying to do without sounding grand. It's something that we've somehow relegated talking about it into those zones of like, oh, this person has been, you know, this spinning nostrums or, or 
It's hard to talk about a search for wisdom without sounding as if you're self-regarding in some way. Um, and yet, in that moment where, when we're most at home with ourselves in the world, we know that it's a search for wisdom. We know that it's a search for ways of acknowledging the interconnectedness of beings. Um, I've taken recently to using a term, because, <sighs> capitalism is, I mean, we think we know what it means. And uh, for a long time I was saying, well, hyper-capitalism really, you know, unrestrained capitalism. And yet even that word always seemed to offer an immediate counter of, well, then socialism or, you know, communism or political anarchism. All of which is interesting, but I was not looking for an immediate political counter. I... I, I am always looking for a way to describe what we're going through and why it is the way it is. So the term I've been using recently is market totalitarianism. And for me, the question is, how do we live under conditions of market totalitarianism? There's no one rubric that explains the whole world, but the idea that We live in a situation where money-making comes before all else. It's a pretty helpful rubric for understanding some of the weird stuff that we see around us. How then can we live? You know, recently in the newspaper, I saw this thing that when people, you know, when, these, uh, when this mob invaded the capital, um that the markets rose to all-time highs right so that's interesting there might be complicated explanations for why the markets reacted that way either that they don't care or that they saw that the problem was contained or that the people doing the buying and selling gamed out what the fallout would be and decided that they needed to buy certain things and, and so on. All of that, you know, the people who analyze such things can put their energy into it. What I found really interesting was that it was news. And it was a very predictable form of news to react to these schisms in the life of the body politic by telling us what the market did. Somebody said, you know, if the, if the asteroid that wiped out um, the, the dinosaurs was approaching Earth right now, the government would react by cutting interest rates, right? So when I say totalitarianism, I, I mean it uh, literally. Um, 
it's it's a it's a form of thinking about the world that obliterates every other possibility. What are the markets doing? What you know? People are suffering. People are impoverished. But the economy is great. It's the economy. It's the market. Inside all of that, how do we grieve? How do we mourn? How do we care for each other? How do we imagine a possible future? And I think this is where questions of the blind spot come in. And this is where questions of strategies of coping by filling in the gaps come in. Um, and I, I would very much say that these are uh, obsessions that are at the center of the work that I am trying to do. What seems very remarkable to me is how you make the blind spot visible in Open City in the way that I feel very enmeshed and in rapport with Julius, the Nigerian-German protagonist, as he walks around New York. And it's clear that what he sees and what he foregrounds through his attention is deeply informed by who he is and his personal history as an immigrant, as someone with a hybrid identity, as a person of color, his encounters with a mentor who has experienced internment during World War II as a Japanese-American, the, the Haitian shoeshiner and his story of, of coming to the United States, the African burial grounds where between 10 and 20,000 mainly enslaved Africans were buried. And I'm imagining if a white protagonist were walking around the city, many of these things wouldn't be noticed or brought forth, let alone, I don't know if Julius knew that at the time of the Revolutionary War, 25% of New York City was was uh, slaves, uh, the second largest population in the colonies. But mm -hmm. I certainly wouldn't think a white protagonist would likely know that or maybe even know that the African burial grounds exist. And thus the story of the city that, the, that a different protagonist would stitch together would involve erasure even if it's not an active erasure just the it could be the erasure of ignorance um as they stitch together a story of what the city is but towards the end of the book you do something that i that i wonder is partially an answer to some of those open-ended questions you asked how do we do how do we grieve how do we be human how do we how do we develop community and it feels like a risky narrative move and it's that julius who's been so um, aware of these different um, storylines uh, and narrative histories, he's confronted with something he's complicit in as a man. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we can see it as readers, but he can't see it. And all of a sudden, I feel this great distance from him, like I'm looking at him from a distance. Maybe I'm up on my own Switzerland. And yet mm -hmm. from that distance, I recognize myself in him and my own blindness. Um, it's as if something about that move you made is, is not allowing the brain to fill in the, the orange size gap in my vision for that moment. It felt, I mean, I don't want to say it didn't feel pedagogical, but it felt like a moment, like a rupture in sort of a, a in a character that any character or any person is going to contain both of those things. We want to pay attention to where the blind spots are 
in our experience of the world. And at the same time, we want to pay attention to the fact of the blind spot, even when we don't know where it is, right? So, and I think those are two different moves. I did not want Open City to be some kind of consoling intellectual tour guide to the atrocities of history. Um, it's a book very much about complicity um, uh, because I think th that very much merits thinking about, you know, intellectual knowledge does not save us. Um, and somebody who's grieving can also be the wounder for, for, for somebody else. Um, I'm not sure that a white protagonist would not be able to attend to, to, to these things. Um, I, I, I don't think I can make any judgment call on who is able to be sensitive to what. Well, I would just add, add as an addendum to that, not that I don't think a white protagonist couldn't do that, but that the average white protagonist walking through Oh, through indeed. New York City would would most likely not be pulling forth these details or having right. or having this encounter with the with different people and and pulling forth these stories from these specific types of stories from these people. Yes, but under conditions of market totalitarianism, the average human being is going to find it very hard to do the grief work to do the historical retrieval work that he or she or they have not, have not been allowed to do, have not been um, educated is completely the wrong word, have been prevented from doing because it's what they would naturally do. Um, possibilities on a large scale for almost all of us have been drowned out by um, other insistences. And yet I also feel as if we live in a historical moment where new possibilities are opening up for our, our alertness. I think, you know, in the summer of 2020, I could see all around me many non-black people thinking about the enormous crime that the United States in itself represents vis-a-vis -vis black people. So... I think it's possible that there can be a tidal movement that inaugurates new possibilities for 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 sensitivity. Um, you know, last night, you know, to talk, talking about being that person in the room who's really not trying to look at and get sort of head up about what everybody else is. Um, you know, as, as, as people, as, 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 the, as the Trumpian mob invaded the Capitol, 
I, I never want to be seduced by what is photographable and what invites immediate commentary. And I know part of why this was taking a lot of people's immediate energy was because it was a a photographable disgrace. On the same day, almost 4,000 people died of COVID-19. An unspeakable, painful, an unspeakably painful number. And for me, that and the conditions that made it possible felt like bigger news. For me, it really did. Um, This other thing was awful, but it was theatrical. It was available in a way that did not seem to me to be the heart of what our way of life was taking from us. And I found that my thinking actually went to Standing Rock and then to Wounded Knee and then looped forward again to the the ghost dances in the Southwest. And this moment of collective mourning and of trying to summon up the dead, the lost, the lost, to honor them and to somehow repair the torn fabric of experience to somehow repair what had been lost in migrations, in massacres, and very pertinently in huge waves of pandemics. And so that's what I've been sitting with, um, the ghost dances. Can I invite you into a, a place of um, that I'm trying to work out that I feel like is a place of not knowing um, where I felt like I knew and I want to just hear your thoughts about something that I'm sort of in a um, unstable, hopefully productive place around around this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. If I return to the quote by Mitchell Jackson and read the whole phrase, the whole phrase is, ignorance requires ignorance of history, which is a way to preserve innocence in the face of living. And I've lived most of my life believing that knowing history and that reckoning with our own histories as peoples and nations was sort of a necessary way to prevent future problems. But since my conversation with Jenny Erpenbeck, I've I've wondered if that's actually true. Because I was comparing in contrasting America, where cities in the North and South have statues of people who defended slavery, compared to Germany, where you won't find statues of Nazis, 
but instead a very considered attention to the country's own complicit, complicity in horror with the stepping stones or tripping stones in Berlin mm-hmm. that alert you to where, let's say, a Jewish family was pulled from their home, for instance. And, and in a way, I feel like Open City is a book full of these tripping stones. Someone's walking around New York and telling the history in both spatial terms and temporal terms around the different ways in which people have been complicit in atrocities and in building New York city and America and, and Germans are educated about the past. Mm. Whereas I, whereas I think like in contrast, like I wonder if most Americans even know what the, the phrase middle passage refers to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I asked Erpenbeck an East Berliner um, about this in relationship to the growing far right in Germany and she really felt like historical reckoning had a, only a very limited effect of a perhaps a generation or two. Um, that one needed the immediacy of proximity with others to see their humanness. Um, like it made me think about the borders within our borders, that how easy it is to remain separated from these sorts of encounters, even within a country. Um, and how when you know, in Jenny Erpenbeck's book about African refugees, I'm imagining that her moving through her daily life in Berlin, she's not going to encounter uh, African refugees who've come off of the boat from the Mediterranean who likely are not allowed to work. So they're not allowed to participate in just average daily life and exchanges, but are sort of hidden away from everybody else. Um, so the asylum is not even really a, a true asylum in, in, in that sense. And so she has to sort of go out of these well-worn grooves of her own walking through her own city to be able to have an encounter of proximity in this way. And that made me think of Sarah Ahmed, who says, it's important to remember that whiteness is not reducible to white skin, when we talk about a sea of whiteness or white space, we talk about the repetition of passing by some bodies and not others. And I guess I just wondered about your thoughts about knowledge of history versus being proximal and um, and encounter, encounter to, to, to not be um, engaging with the story of the immigrant from El Salvador now in a cage on the border or in Fort Mojave, um, but a life where you're having to contend with them and their dreams and desires and pains and failings. Yeah, and um, even and even get to a point where to say them feels uncomfortable because yes. we recognize that we are in community together. Um but not to assert that before it's true. Um, I think about your conversation with Natalie Diaz, you know, and her hesitation around questions of translation and acquiring knowledge. Um, I do think one of the moves of whiteness is that everything can be apprehended and everything must be grabbed, 
this is the colonial move, this is the imperial move. Um, uh, and botany and zoology and ge geology and geography and studying the world and accumulating knowledge is intimately connected to um, suppressing, acquiring, and destroying the worlds of others. Um, so science and colonialism have all, all often had a great deal to do with each other. And knowledge acquisition um, is very often uh, about control. You know, um, the, C the, the CIA world fact, fact book, <laughs> you know. I was thinking that even literally naturalists were often on slave ships as a way to get and collect or were using, utilizing slave ships to bring back specimens or to travel to a specific place. Um, right, right. So there's in a sense for you. Um, the truth of history is that um, we don't love each other enough. You know, uh, when you keep people in chattel slavery, when you keep millions of people in conditions of living death, um, that is very profound enmity. I think that's history's lesson, that enmity of um, unmeasurable depth is always possible. So I, I also resist the ease of saying we have to know more about history. I think knowing things is good as part of one's ethical equipment. I don't think reading makes us better people. I don't think having university degrees makes us better people. I don't think our accolades make us better people. Uh, I was very uncomfortable with the list of accolades with <laughs> which you introduced me. Um, and it's not to say I did not take pleasure in winning some of those things, um, but but they very much seem um, beside the point. They seem like indictments. Um, so where where is the point? You know, um, there's there's an American word I've always disliked which is the word fix in this in the sense of just making a problem disappear. Yeah. The only way we're going to fix this is blah, blah, blah. And this way of thinking is just general. The world actually cannot be fixed. All year zero experiments fail dramatically whether we're talking about Cambodia, we're talking about the French Revolution, or the Soviet Socialist Republics, or China. You can't go back to year zero. You can't kill your way out of the problem of living. I don't like the word fix, even in its lesser forms. It makes me uncomfortable. The once and for all fix. There is no once and for all fix for anything. The word I like 
is the word repair. More tentative, more humble. Actually, repair sounds to me like a word that has been feminized. Because we think of somebody stitching, somebody weaving, somebody making something carefully with their hands and making do. The Marines go in there to fix things. Um, they don't go in there to repair things. Um, repair can always be undone. Right? Ariadne. Well, actually I'm thinking of Penelope. Un unweaving what she has woven. Weaving and unweaving. The, the provisional character of repair, I would say, is where I try to center um, my thinking. This is not a quietest view of the world. I'm not saying we shouldn't do anything. We should do something. We should be repairing. But what does repair look like? There are ever-expanding circles of responsibility and care from wherever we're located. We have responsibilities to the people closest to us. Those of us who work in image making and in broadcasting and writing have discursive responsibilities that go beyond the people in our immediate household or circle of friends. Because of social media now, where very, very many people are in the role of broadcasting, the responsibility of repair is actually larger now because of we can reach larger groups of people. We're always going to have these horrifying problems with us. That's not an attitude of defeat. Um, we can ameliorate some of them. That's the work. Um, and it's kind of like individual work that then gradually becomes collective work. And there are very obviously very many ways to go about this, including being a political activist. My way of going about it just happens to be that of being a writer and a photographer. I was hoping we could hear two pages from Human Archipelago, if you'd be willing to read a little bit for us. Yeah, I would be happy to do that. Okay. Yes. So here are um, these two passages from human archipelago, which I made in collaboration with Fazal Sheikh, his photographs and my texts. The extraordinary courage of Lasana Batili, an immigrant from Mali, saved six lives during a terrorist attack at a kosher supermarket at the Port de Vincennes. He was rewarded with French citizenship by the French president, François Hollande. But this is not a story about courage. 
the superhuman agility and bravery of Mamudu Gassama, an immigrant from Mali, saved a baby from death in the 18th arrondissement. He was rewarded with French citizenship by the French president, Emmanuel Macron. But this is not a story about bravery. The superhuman is rewarded with formal status as a human. The merely human, meanwhile, remains unhuman, quasi-human, subhuman. The already human, to be granted humanity in this arrangement, must be superhuman. No, not merely superhuman, but visibly, demonstrably superhuman. Gassama crossed the Mediterranean in a tiny boat. That was superhuman, but no one filmed that. He remained subhuman, and there was no reward. Such is empire's magnanimity. Merci, patron. Je suis tellement reconnaissant, patron. The hand that gives, it is said in Mali, is always above the hand that receives. Those who are hungry cannot reject food. Not only those who are hungry, but those who have been deliberately starved. But soon comes the day when the Hebrews will revolt and once and for all refuse Pharaoh's capricious largesse. Dear Zerisane, one of Eichmann's defenses was that he was, after all, merely a tiny cog in the wheel of the Nazi machine, a mere cog. If he hadn't done what he did, someone else would have. But the whole question of being part of the machine is a different one from personal responsibility. Personal responsibility does not subside even under oppressive regimes. One can always refuse to participate in evil. You were arrested in February last year in Texas. By whom? You were kept in detention for 16 months. Who were these prison guards in Florida and Ohio? Who was processing your deportation case? Who wrote the policy? Who was the judge who finally approved your deportation? Who carried you, finally, kicking and screaming to the plane? Who kept you confined during the flight? Who handed you over to Egyptian authorities at Cairo airport? Were they all mere cogs? Who found your dead body, dear Zerisane? Who wrote the statement on ISIS website in the reptilian language of functionaries, passed away, deceased in a shower area? He attempted to unlawfully enter the United States. 
Whose logic is this? Another cog in the machine. So many who could have said, no, this is wrong. We cannot send this man back to Eritrea to a fate of unspeakable suffering or even death. But who dared say it? And they don't think of themselves as murderers. Nevertheless, a man died. I'm sorry for your despair, Zerasene. I'm sorry that you ran out of hope. You are beyond consoling now, but we the living console ourselves with Simon Weil's words. Quote, Whether the mask is labelled fascism, democracy, or dictatorship of the proletariat, our great adversary remains the apparatus, the bureaucracy, the police, the military. No matter what the circumstances, the worst betrayal will always be to subordinate ourselves to this apparatus and to trample underfoot in its service all human values in ourselves and in others. End quote. This is our refusal, and we cannot claim it is for you who are now beyond reach. No, it is for ourselves. May God comfort those who loved you. We've been listening to Teju Cole read from Human Archipelago. I wanted you to read those passages because I wanted to sort of move more into a discussion of your aesthetics as a writer and a photographer. And when I listen to these two excerpts, I feel the ways you're bringing us proximate and also most powerfully in the second one, how you bring us into the specifics and the particulars of actions that can easily otherwise float along as banal and morally neutral acts, but in mass become acts of violence. And it made me think of a recent guest, Vanessa Vasalka, who said that really the greatest privilege someone can have is the privilege of being abstract. And also about something Jory Graham was saying recently in a talk about how as poets we need to train our instrument to the visible and to the sensory, to the bodily versus the conceptual, and to be attentive in this way. And I feel like you're doing these things. I feel like these things are part of your aesthetic, but I also feel like there's perhaps something, a countervailing aspect to your aesthetic approach that you alluded to at the beginning of the program. And I kind of wanted to tease it out with you. Um, after the murder of um, Ahmad Arbery, the 25-year-old black man who was shot in cold blood for jogging in a white neighborhood, where no one was arrested for 74 days. You posted on Facebook that you don't watch videos of murder, and particularly not of white people killing black people, that you stopped about five years ago, and that increasingly you push back against editors who even want to run a still of a video or a photo of a murdered black person. And you say, looking away can mean different things, sometimes opposite things, absolutely depends on who's looking and what they're looking at. I feel like you confront some of these questions in your essay, Death in the Browser Tab, but I was thinking more of your article, When the Camera Was a Weapon of Imperialism and When It Still Is, 
where among other things, you look at a 1899 photograph of a pre-colonial Nigerian king who typically would be wearing a beaded crown that serves as a veil because his face as a holy being would not be uncovered in public. But in this photograph, he sits with white Christian explorer colonizers and his veil is parted and his face photographed, likely under duress. And many of his tribesmen, despite the superficial way the photograph is composed and choreographed, look alarmed. And I'm also thinking about the role of the human in your photography itself. There are very few faces. Often where there are humans, they're turned away from the camera or we see them from a very far distance. And even more often, there are no humans, but a focus on the human presence within a landscape, but with the absence of the, of the actual human bodies. And I guess I wanted to hear a little bit about what I feel like is an attentiveness to the visual an attentiveness to the specifics and particularity of the narrative that holds us and tethers us to accountability as moral beings, but also this other aspect of, of turning away from capturing something that you've otherwise seen. Yeah. Thank you, David. And, uh, you know, thank you as always for your meticulous and careful preparation. Um, it's, it's, it really is a pleasure to be in conversation with you because, uh, you know, earlier on I was talking about repair and care and I think um, the work you do on this podcast is actually work of repair. It is about speaking because you ask detailed questions Though what's interesting about the questions is not their detail, but again, your attitude to them. And it's also about listening. So I just wanted to pause at this moment to thank you for creating this space in which we can address these things. I think there's a vein of political intimacy that I try to pursue in my work that was very much confirmed for me in reading many writers uh, I've uh, learned from um, Toni Morrison, Judith Butler, I would say, Sarah Ahmed, whom you cited. Um, but in this particular mode, I would say above all, John Berger. Um, we were talking about knowledge earlier and, you know, which is, of course, related to expertise and authority. Learning good English and writing things down and publishing books and being ushered into the library is a kind of a reward for being a good imperial subject. How then are we to tilt against that? How do we break that down and make it do what it's not supposed to do? And so I want to think about two young men from Mali. I want to think about Zara Sane, who was deported from the United States. 
um, I want to refigure. I want to reconfigure the question of whom the text is addressing. I really want to embody this "we who." Um, I think that when we're um, learning about the sort of philosophical sacredness of the other, when we're thinking with Martin Buber and Levinas, thinking about the I and the thou, and recognizing that the core of that form of engagement is to understand that you're not the other person. And to actually absorb them into yourself would be a kind of violence. And so I think there's a sort of an appropriate caution when, for example, we're photographing other people to not replicate the practices of, of stealing. We don't want to engage in practices of stealing other people's worlds. We want to assert that photography can be doing something else. On the other hand, you know, Toni Morrison talks about the stranger summons up a ripple of alarm because we know that the stranger is already encountered. It's not the newness that bothers us. It's the, oh, I'm connected to this person. And people who cannot deal with that sense of alarm then engage in exaggerated violence. And so this is the balance between respect of, of saying there's certain things I'm not going to look, look at and there's certain things I'm not going to write and the mutual hospitality of saying this person is included in my conception of the world. Um, and I'm included in theirs. And even if everything in my society is telling me to discount this person's humanity, I refuse to do so. In fact, I'm going to center this person. I'm going to center their experience. I don't consent to the general hierarchies about whose life is worthy of life. So, and I think that that is, that is the quest, to find that balance between both of those two. And it's going to end up, I mean, like, like John Berger's work, it has to be a kind of this combination of intimacy. So writing a letter to the dead, for example, and reticence, you know, um, you know, moments of saying to my photo editor, no, no, I can't show you that. We can't look at that. We can't print that because who, who is it for? You know, those who already know, no. And those who don't know are only going to be entertained by it. And this, this is not a space for entertainment. You know, this is a, this is a space for repair. In that essay, you say that among human rights is the right to remain obscure, unseen and dark. 
which makes me think, and I wonder if you're referring to Glissant's notion of opacity, the right not to be understood on other people's terms. Um, I'm definitely referring, in a way, to Glissant there. Um, but as somebody who is academy-adjacent, I often think about citational practices, um, which has to do with knowledge production and expertise and libraries and white seriousness, the first person to discover XYZ. Um, and I'm very drawn to modes of knowing that are a little bit more careful about saying who the first person is to discover XYZ uh, because uh, human knowledge is very old. Um, so I freely acknowledge influences and my reading and all of that. Um, and Glissant is very important to me, particularly his writing about opacity. Um, but I'm also curious about the ethos of arriving at a text and finding a recognition in it, uh, a confirmation, a help, a conceptual help for something that you've been working on. The text is no good, really, if, if the ground of your heart is not prepared for it. Um, but do you know one of the books I've read the most in the past one year has been Lately, Long Soldiers Whereas. And I think your conversation with her on this podcast is one of my favorite conversations anyone has had with anyone anywhere. It is truly powerful, restorative, and recentering. Um, I happen to have taught whereas many times in my classes. And what I find in it is confirmation of the respect I would wish to have for the disregarded. for the forms of refusal that are available to the apparently defeated. A kind of inextinguishable victory exists that cannot actually be heard when things are very, very noisy, you know. But when things are quieted down and you go to a certain text, it is sometimes like finding that other person in the room whose attention is not on the main event. 
even as I deeply regret using this particular metaphor because you you could not find a less uh, less of a fan of 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 the Secret Service than than, than me, but let's just say all circumstances in which somebody is engaging in contrary vision. Um, interest me. Well, I want to take this idea of finding this other person who's looking at it the way you are in the crowd to this notion of, I think a repeated notion of doubleness in your work. Um, I mean, we could go back to Switzerland and the notion that when you're taking a photograph of a mountain, sometimes it feels like you're taking a photograph of a photograph of the mountain because Switzerland's art is so photographed and also so iconic that it feels like um, you're engaging with images of the place. But you also say in, in Human Archipelago, we are and we are not what we see. Doubleness is the first condition of the human. We are not ourselves without also being the other. And I, I wanted to I wanted to take this doubling of you and Baldwin in Switzerland and, and talk more broadly about the way you engage not only with the works of artists you admire, but also with their actual lives in the world at large. Because we go up the mountain with you and Baldwin. We travel various ports in Mediterranean Europe with you and Caravaggio. We go with you to Zabald's gravesite. We know that when you can't sleep, there's nothing better than watching videos of Derrida talk during your insomnias. Um, and when we, when I think of Open City as sort of the book of continual encounter and of your most recent fiction, City of Pain, where we're all islands unto ourselves, I, I love your impulse to want to recreate the movements in the world of the artists you love and to take us with you. So we're in a way your double as you're doubling them. And we don't have to come speaking of sort of this certifiable academy knowledge. We don't have to come with previous knowledge of Beethoven or of Kieslowski or of John Berger because you're sharing your love for these artists with us. And I think you're teaching us about them through your love of them. And you recently shared a video of a former student of yours, a, a, a black student who made a video of how he had never felt like museums were meant for him. And even more so, probably never expected to be in a, a art history class taught by a black professor that would open that world up for him in an enduring and lifelong way um, that you would cross that border with him. And it made me think of one of the ways you meditated on a difference between you and Baldwin. Um, and I'm just going to read the quote that you quote um, of his. And maybe you could just talk about the ways in which you feel like you depart from it. But he's speaking of, of white cultural heritage here. These people cannot be, from the point of view of power, strangers anywhere in the world. They have made the modern world in effect, even if they do not know it. The most illiterate among them is related, in a way I am not, to Dante, Shakespeare, Michelangelo, Aeschylus, Da Vinci, Rembrandt, and Racine. The cathedral at Chartres 
says something to them which it cannot say to me, as indeed would New York's Empire State Building, should anyone here ever see it. Out of their hymns and dances come Beethoven and Bach. Go back a few centuries, and they are in their full glory, but I am in Africa watching the conquerors arrive. Can, can you speak into your essay, or, mm-hmm. or, or if not into your essay, yeah. into your current thoughts about this? feels like part of your project, I, I do feel like, is um, breaking down this sense of the ivory tower around these things. Um, and I would like to hear about your sensibility around that in contrast to James Baldwin in this case. I should say that one of the things that makes James Baldwin so valuable to so many of us is that he writes with a kind of immediacy. His sensations are not mediated by bullshit. He writes it as he feels it, and he writes it well. Um, That particular passage is an interesting one, and it's a note he sounds in a few other places in Notes of a Native Son. It's interesting because it is one of the places where I feel, I wouldn't call it a disagreement, I would say I have a different experience than he does. And and why not? You know, 50 years later, I grew up in a different place and the world has also changed. You know, um, all of those things, those great European cultural products he mentioned I try to approach and understand not first and foremost as cultural products made by oppressive systems, though that is important information about them. But I start from somewhere else. Um, this kind of frenzied capitalism that we live in, what I've been calling market totalitarianism, produces loneliness. Sort of uh, existential isolation that deprives people of the tools with which to navigate their place in the universe. This might be genuinely new in the history of the world. Um, Cultures have always provided people with the tools. And now we're all just sort of screaming into the void because we've been robbed of, of, of many, many of the tools that help anchor human experience in the world. I remember what Sun Ra said. He said, everything comes from outer space. Everything, you know. It's all meteors, it's all from the sun. The only thing Earth produces, he said, is the dead bodies of humans. I feel like, in a very vital way, the only thing market totalitarianism really produces is human alienation depriving us of the tools with which to 
and fold ourselves in the fabric of time. So that when I encounter a quintet by Brahms or traditional Papuan flute music, these are things that give me a chance to reinfold myself in those sustaining human networks to the mystery of being alive. Um, and I don't care whether it's made by white people or not. What I care about is that it's not only what is made by white people that is sustaining me. Um, but I wanted to address what you said also about doubleness, and I'm glad you picked up on that because that's so important to me. You know, I think at its heart, that is about intimacy. Um, again, to go down to the root of the word immediacy, to try to communicate with the viewer or the reader in a way that is not mediated, but that it feels, it really does feel like they got up in the middle of the night to read this and they could feel the words pulsing in their own head. Um, it makes me think of the cave paintings in a place like Chauvet, which, and I'm a, I have a kind of holy awe towards cave paintings because I think, well, painting hasn't actually improved since then. It's gotten worse. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I mean it seriously. Because, you know, painting is a form of, it's a, it's, it's a spiritual practice and it's exercise. And you can, you can feel the spiritual accuracy of the touch of, 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 of these ancestors of ours tens of thousands of years ago. There's certain places where the bulge in the bison's body is implied by the section of rock that has been selected on which an outline is drawn so that it's both a drawing but it's also a three-dimensional rendering in collaboration with the given. That suggests to me that the world is, off, is often offering us narrative possibilities. Um, there's always an offer of collaboration with what's out there in the world. I think that's what I'm looking for. Um, particularly when I'm writing about artists and writers and encounters and pilgrimages, I'm proposing a collaboration with somebody else in the room. I'm inviting the reader and the viewer into that collaboration as well. Um, of Garcia Marquez's The Public Life, The Private Life, and The Secret Life. I think American confessional poetry of the past 60 years has made a lot, a lot of the private life. Um, 
And some of that has been sorted and actually maybe not that interesting. Tell-alls and exposés. But the secret life is a very, very interesting place to encounter each other. You know, um, this is not to say that people's family drama or sex lives are not interesting. Of course they are. But there's actually a layer below that where the real essences are. Um, and that's a, that's, that's a place in which I am willing to meet um, uh, the people who read my work. I'm glad you brought up this three-dimensional aspect, the collaboration with the given. Um, my, because my favorite journey with you is as you travel to the places Caravaggio travels in his final days, running from the law and making paintings along the way. And as you visit each of these paintings, you end up in various port cities, from Naples to Syracuse to Malta. And because of this, you end up also engaging with the contemporary now the contemporary refugee situation in Europe and spending as much time trying to find where a given boat of refugees will dock as you are looking for a specific painting. For instance, when you're in Syracuse in Sicily, you, you are put in touch with a refugee from Gambia and he asks why, why you were there and you tell him you're going to see a painting and you invite him into the church. And even though he lives there now, he's never been inside you contemplate the burial of St. Lucy together, which also seems fitting given your interest in eyes, um, that her eyes have been gouged out and are on a platter. And this three-dimensionality, this you following the art, but also following the life of the artist out in the world, and the story of all of these places becomes the story of the now in these places and the experience of seeing these paintings can't help but be informed by the now of seeing them, even if you weren't literally standing next to a refugee. But you also mentioned, and this is where my impossible, perhaps impossible question comes up. You also mentioned that Caravaggio wasn't such a great guy, not only getting into fights and fleeing from city to city, but he was a murderer and a slaveholder. And I wanted to ask you about how, you approach the artist behind the art in these scenarios. And, and this isn't on the same level as, as Caravaggio by any means, but, I, but recently for me, I, I'm thinking of Luis Gluck's, who's, Luis Gluck, whose poetry I've been a longtime admirer of, and I, th I think you have as well, and her Nobel speech where she chose to talk about William Blake's poem, The Little Black Boy and Swanee River by Stephen Foster. And it seems perhaps that the most charitable reading of that speech might be the innocence in the face of living that comes from sort of a tone-deaf obliviousness to the moment, a speech that does not attend to the now of the occasion within which it's being delivered, and where Mary Carr tweets, At this point in history, Louise Glick, my grad thesis advisor and a poet I deeply admire, wrote a minstrel show Nobel speech. In 1789, Blake's black boy might have passed as abolitionist, but it came out of a shoe-polished white face, 
wake the fuck up. But others go further and sort of like an ink stain on a white shirt that both ruins and defines the entire piece of clothing. They look at the speech as a lens into her poetics more generally that the intimate private voice she extols in the speech above the public utterance is itself formed from a Switzerland-like desire for white transcendence from context. Um, I don't need you to speak to her or to Caravaggio necessarily, mm. though you can if you want. Mm. But I'm, I'm curious about these questions for you. Like when you are engaged and love the art of an artist who's also upholding something you abhor. It's a typically, that's a typically rich David Naiman uh, <laughs> question. So let's see how we shall approach that. I mean, I think the question is about two things. One is about um, the making of this Caravaggio essay, which longest, I can't even remember now how long it is. It's, it's something like 10,000 words. It's by far the longest thing I've um, ever published uh, in a magazine. Um, and it, it came out in the New York Times magazine last fall. So there's that essay itself, and then there's this, lar this larger or narrower question of relating to, let's, let's say, troub troublesome artists. One of the questions I tried to draw out in writing that essay was, what does it mean to write a travel piece for the New York Times magazine? You cited earlier my essay, When the Camera Was a Weapon of Imperialism. I think the New York Times is a weapon of imperialism. And I think travel pieces for the New York Times often serve in that role. Because for the presumed reader, the world is available to be consumed. How do we enjoy benefit from, remain awake to the world at large without cannibalizing the worlds of others is the question I'm trying to approach in my work. It's not necessarily the thing that interests the New York Times or the New York Times Magazine the most, at least from the business side. I'm fortunate that there I actually have a great editor who wants to sit with me and think through these things and figure out with me how much we can get away with on the pages of the magazine. And I think we've done some strong pieces together. So I went out there and the travel for this piece actually happened in 2016 with the idea that I would follow Caravaggio around. I love these paintings and I would somehow connect it to the refugee crisis. Okay, that was... That was the proposal, that's what I went out there, that's what I researched, that's what I tried to do. When I came back and I wrote my first draft, and it actually took me a long time to write the first draft, maybe not until 2017, it was very hard 
to organize this material. When I wrote the first draft, I was disgusted by it because it read like a pleasant travel piece. Um, it took me about another three years to get it right because I realized that writing something that simply flatters the art historical interests of a presumed middle and upper middle class white audience is not what I want to do with my time um, and it's not how I want to expend my emotional treasure. So what I tried to do in the piece was grapple with what does it even mean to be out here? Looking at this thing, looking at this man's work, what does it mean to be engaging these other people? How do I think about my privilege of looking at art, which is a privilege that is also absolutely therapeutic and life-saving for me. So, you know, if, you, if, you're, if you, you, could be taking a, you could be taking insulin for your diabetes and recognize it as a privilege, but also recognize it as a necessity. And yet, here are the dead, the dying, the profoundly endangered. And so I had to work my way towards making it a more difficult and more tortured piece. And, and that's what it ended up being. Um, I think it started out with a more innocent love of Caravaggio. And, and I think it ended up saying, I know what Caravaggio does for me and how he helps me with the problems of being human. And meanwhile, fuck Caravaggio. <laughs> right? Right. And 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 and, <laughs> and and I think that helped me find some language around difficult artists. Okay? How I think it's also important not to jump on all this stuff in the most obvious way. You know, um, we're all in the world and there's a very vanishingly small number of miscreants who are, who are deserving of metaphorical or actual deletion. I think that's a small number. I think the much greater number is in a gray zone. And it becomes a question of saying, whose work at which moment helps me with my own deeper project of humaning of repair. You have to have such a deep respect for that project that you will use whatever helps you do it better. That's my attitude to a lot of artists, um, including those who have done harm. 
it's not a blanket thing and it's not an easily arrived at thing. And I'm even wary of getting to name specific people because the person whose work I think has some aspect that allows me to strengthen my own ethical commitments in the world, even if the person has done some other harm that is not present inside that specific aspect of their work, that person, whomever it might be, if I were to name that person, could be somebody who's actively done doing harm to somebody else or or to somebody else that person is not it's no way no how not this guy you know not this woman not this person because they don't need it that way um and vice versa there are other people whose stuff it's like you know what I like your work well enough, but then on top of all of this, actually, there's plenty in the world. I don't really need to mess with all that. I don't need to be inside that space. So I I, 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 I think these matters invite a great deal of public grandstanding. Um, but ultimately, each person decides for themselves what difficulties they're willing to absolutely not overlook but what what difficulties fail to obliterate the value yes of certain aspects of a person's work uh, the world is actually not divided between the innocent and the evil. You know, the world is, for the most part, um, people who have gotten lots of things right and people who have gotten the same people have gotten lots of things wrong for reasons of their own personality, egregious errors they've made, the societies in which they live their own lack of courage. Um, um, and then the last thing I'll say about that is that that is absolutely true of those of us in our generation as well. Um, particularly from the point of view of coming generations. You know, they're going to ask us how, how we could sit there complacently while... China incarcerated more than a million people and, and made, forced them into labor and killed untold numbers uh, simply because they were suspected of having a faith that the Chinese leadership does not like. Um, the future will look at us and say, and you guys just filled your house, your houses with Chinese made goods. That was f fine by you, apparently. You know, the, the stuff that, you know, um, in, in, in comparison to that, uh, Louis Gluck's admittedly bad speech will come to look like a complete trifle compared to some of our own staggering, staggering blind spots. 
including the masks that we wear, which are being made by Uyghurs in forced labor camps. Right. And, and, and when you said including the masks we wear, I actually thought you meant uh, metaphorically. But our literal masks and our metaphorical masks, because part of the coin of the realm, of course, is to present oneself as in some way um, uh, morally flawless, um, uh, I don't think we're all deeply flawed morally. I, I, I have no basis for saying we all are. I think most of us are. I think most of us are. And I, um, and I, I would even venture that the quicker the willingness to participate in in, in certain um, takedowns, you know, the, the more likely that some 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 self examination is 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 in order. And all of this is said with with an acknowledgement that we also live in a tremendous moment for um, a collective search for the repair of harm. Yeah. Uh, of, of various kinds that have been ig- ignored. Um. Well, I want to I want to stay with one for another moment with Caravaggio in 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 um, in a celebratory way in terms of his art. And you definitely opened my eyes to an artist that I didn't know well. Um, but I wanted to read this this. Um, quote from Jory Graham about him, about his painting Supper at a Mouse. Um, I often teach a painting of Caravaggio's Supper at a Mouse. Christ is sitting before us in an alcove against the quote-unquote back wall of the painting. We face into a dinner table covered with things for the meal. We are quite sure that the edge of this table is identical with the absolute front of the canvas. But then one undergoes a troubling sensation. The basket of fruit, the edge of the wicker basket, sticks out into our actual space, our here and now. The host suddenly recognizes the stranger at his table as Christ and throws open his arms. His left hand comes out beyond the border, further than the sacramental grapes and their wicker, out here into the same air that you and I are breathing in the National Gallery. At the same time, his right hand penetrates the crucial, illusionistic space, the alcove in which Christ sits. What he does by going like this is enact what it is to be taken by surprise, to be suddenly in that spiritual space where the otherness of the world, of possibility, turns one's soul, taking one off the path of mere ongoingness onto the other path of journey. You suddenly realize Caravaggio has activated what I call the sensation of real time. The time of the painting's represented action has crossed over into the time in which my only days are taking place. So you cannot read the painting without being inside the terms of the painting 
which are these graduating degrees of temporality, mortal time, immortal time, represented time, actual time, the time of process. The host is crucified in this position, a position the artist is also in, saying, you reader and you subject, God, Christ, I have put you two together. It's my job. That's what the meal is. That's what we eat. Hmm. And I just love this this um, intimacy, this doubleness, this three-dimensionality, which seems to connect back to a lot of what we've talked about and also to Derrida and hospitality and the way he reverses. Mm-hmm. He makes the host the guest of the guest and the guest the host of the host. Mm-hmm. Um and it's the breaking down of barriers, the sudden disillusion between the host guest relationship. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and of course, those are words that are, have the same Indo-European root, ghost and guest. Ghost and guest. And ghost, guest, and host actually all have the same etymological root. Um, yeah, that's a wonderful passage by Jory Graham. Um, and, uh, uh, she's a great colleague here um, uh, at Harvard, and she's also somebody I, I I admire very much. There's 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 a chain of generosity that's happened there in Caravaggio's work, her reading of it, your enjoyment of that, your sharing it with me. This is what one of the things that art can offer us can offer a space for. Um, uh, collective wonder um, it can it can propose a parenthesis in our experience of the world our, our life is you know we wake up there's that little bit of pain in your back um, there's email you know there's bills uh, there's the people you love there might be small simmering conflicts that you have to sort out their duties, their larger fears, their societal breakdown. All of it is thrumming. Um, Perhaps you have the opportunity to read a great poem. Perhaps you have the opportunity to look at a painting and think with it. You know, um, but I think this also extends to cooking a good meal, taking a long hike, um, or even just you're coming back from your night shift and you've got your headphones on and you're deep inside uh, a song that has been made by someone. Um, to go back to the cave paintings for a second, if I'm having a moment where I'm trying to imagine someone, let's say 35,000 years ago, putting pigment onto a rock, in contact with the divine and that, you know, these millennia later, that is something that is still emanating from it. The person who made that is a conduit for something that we're doing collectively as humans. She or he is putting it up there.
I am receiving it. We're collaborating. I'm trying to say something about the character of the cave painter, which I don't know about, which I cannot really know about. This might have been somebody who was brutal in certain ways that might have been in keeping with their customary practices in that community. This might have been somebody who was brutal in a way that went above and beyond what was customary in that place. In other words, it is possible that the cave painter might have been a bad actor. I implicitly accept this somehow. I mean, often we don't even think about it, but implicitly we accept it. And there's something I'm trying to think with there. And it has to do with respecting what's complicatedly human in yourself while trying to care for who needs to be cared for. What I don't want is to flatten myself. Um... Ultimately, I don't agree with Sun Ra <laughs> that the planet Earth only produces dead human bodies. The planet Earth also produces human life in collaboration with air and sunlight and all those things that come from outer space. But it produces human life. And human life has so much in it. And I believe that the balance just comes out on the side of it's, it's worth it. Thinking of the Caravaggio, Supper at a Mouse, and the sudden shift of vision, not just of the people at the table who suddenly realize that the stranger at the table is the resurrected Christ, but also the way Jory Graham describes the, the shift of vision for the viewer as well. I, I wanted to ask you about faith in your work, this question of hospitality and of seeing the divinity in the stranger feels very much part of your work. And you engage with many stories from the Bible. And like James Baldwin, you very much grew up in the church with faith. But you've also described a sudden loss of it. And I wondered if you could maybe speak into that a little bit for us or about how the disappearance of it has echoed forward in, in terms of how it informs your art making? I think what I've, what I've been learning um, well in my life, uh, uh, along the timeline of what one calls a life, um, in which it so happens that the things you know at 15 might not be as rich or full as the things you know at 30. And... Then at 45, you've complicated things even further um, because you've experienced more. 
And I can say that one thing I've learned is that vision is not a final thing. Um, a way of looking at the world is not established once and for all. It's always vulnerable to new information and to new experiences. Um, and so I would say the role that Christianity in particular, let's say faith in general, but Christianity in particular plays in my life um, is there's still an echo of it in my life, even though at a certain point in my mid to late 20s, um, I, I, I realized that this was not my path. Um, it echoes because I still have a recognition of a need for language uh, with which to deal with uh, what life uh, proposes. Um, but, you know, that raises a question of why. Why leave it? Why not do the work inside that space? And probably the biggest thing for me, at the time I thought it was because, well, there's no evidence that this is more true than anything else. Why should I commit myself to what seems a random choice? And then maybe my later self would say, and besides, a colonially imposed choice. But ultimately, it's actually really not about any of those things. It's not about whether it's colonial, it's not about whether it's um, random, and it's not about whether it's provable. What I find now to be the core of why I needed to leave it is that it was a narrow vision of what life could be. And specifically, I think that Christianity gives a poor account of other people's lives. People who are not in Christianity, Christianity doesn't seem to know what to really do with them. In its harsher and more stringent forms, of course, it just says they go to hell because they don't believe. Um, but even in its softer forms, it seems to think that people who don't have Christ in their lives are somehow malformed, incomplete, unfulfilled. My experience of life is that that's not the case. So... I would say definitely it was a move towards having a more robust sense of how to look at the mystery of being in the world. You know, when I say all this, understanding well that um, for some people, Christianity is the tool for being in the world and they can live perfectly fulfilled lives doing that, just as lots of people can do that with Islam in their life, and lots of people can do it with Buddhism, um, and lots of people can do it without uh, any kind of religious uh, belief. But for me, that delimitation, that being inside a belief system that on some level thought that Hindus were wrong, you know, or that gay people were not quite complete, or that women were somehow less, or that whiteness was in a way central. Um, all of that just seemed to me um, a somewhat impoverished way of living, you know, the one life that I had. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's interesting that you bring up vision being provisional and incomplete. 
And if we take that in relationship to faith, as you just presented it, in one of your books, we see you when you're younger in Nigeria, when you're still a believer, laying hands on someone's eyes to heal their poor vision. But later on in life, you yourself lost your sight temporarily and for a while didn't know if it would come back or come back the same way. And it makes sense thinking about that experience or imagining myself back, imagining myself into that experience of yours, that you would have a book called Blind Spot, that the epilogue of known and strange things would also be called Blind Spot, that blind spots would be explicitly mentioned in Open City, and that in Human Archipelago, there would be meditations on the eyes of blind people who had been photographed. But the most uncanny thing is, if I have the timeline correct, is that you also engaged with blind spots prior to your own brush with blindness. There's a character in your first book, Every Day is for the Thief, who is wounded in one eye, always rubbing it while observing the narrator who is observing Nigeria. So I guess this is a two-pronged question. (laughs) I'd love to hear more about how the physical loss of sight changed the way you thought of looking afterwards, but also as someone who would no longer look to a, a cosmological or spiritual answer for what seems like an insanely uncanny coincidence that this focus on eyes and loss of vision predates your actual lived experience of a loss of vision. I, I was curious what what your story you would, you tell yourself is around that um, fascination with the eye and the failing eye um, prior to your eye having that experience. Mm. Well, um, you know, David, I have the experience now that um, probably many of your guests have had, which is of being moved and impressed by, again, the depth of your research and your preparation, um, because the way you've just sort of strung together those pearls of the places in my work where I'm directly um, engaging with questions of blind spot, um, it's not the most unusual question for me to get. Obviously, I have a book with that title. And as you allude to, I actually had a diagnosis that was called the big blind spot syndrome. So, um, uh, so far, so uncanny. But you, you might be one of three or four people in the entire um, my own engagement with the readership of Every Day is for the Thief, that first book, who has mentioned that character. Uh, I think that's because a lot of people are reading this almost as if it's a memoir and they're just reading past um, certain strategies inside the book. Um, But that character who recurs several times, usually wearing a blue cap, usually rubbing an eye or troubled in his eye somehow, um, a very obviously fictional character, even in a book that has a extensive non-fictional framing to it. Um, 
is one of my favorite characters. Um, he's a kind of angel. He's a witnessing angel who is there in many scenes as someone else who's watching. Um, and the things he's watching are hard to watch in general. And he's not really also, he's also not really of here, of our world. He's here and he's not here. And I think that is often accompanied by some kind of physical frailty. So that so much for that character. And then as you as you mention, that is a concern that then thickens through my various works. Um, I'm actually writing something right now that um, once again, I trouble for for a leading character in that. Um, the coincidence is a coincidence, really, that I wrote, you know, very explicitly, not just about uh, eye trouble, but actually about blind spots in Open City. And it was a few months after that book was published that um, I first had my, my own um, eye trouble. Um, and nevertheless, coincidences can be indicative somehow. They can be barometric in a way or, or sensitive to environmental conditions. Um, so coincidence doesn't seem quite the right term for it. It's a kind of sensitivity to how one might um, engage, you know, with reality. Um, so ultimately with blindness on the one hand and ethics or ethical narrative commitments on the other. I think what I found was um, a metaphoric tool that was helpful for me. I really think that's what it is. It's a way of thinking. I don't necessarily think people who are blind are wiser. I did not enjoy at all temporarily losing my vision. Every now and again, it still happens. And I am alarmed by it. Uh, I don't think it's cool and I don't think it's great. <laughs> yeah. And yet, like certain other forms of pain, it concentrates the mind. And... Um, It ushers in a sort of experiential parenthesis into which something else might uh, be made manifest, right? So um, there's a way infirmity can force us into a kind of humility. Um, so thinking around blindness in that way has been, has been somewhat helpful for me. Well, when I think about you talking about it as a metaphoric tool, 
And then also thinking about this witnessing angel of this character, one of your favorite characters, but a, an overlooked character uh, by others. Um, it, it brings me back to the metaphor you used at the beginning of our conversation that you then admitted feeling uh, uncomfortable with its implications several times in the conversation of the of being like a secret serviceman, like being at the event and being on the margins and and seeing somebody else who's also witnessing with you. So you're you're part of, but also not part of. But I wonder if maybe the witnessing angel is a is is a less problematic metaphor for you. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. Did you want to finish the question? Well, I just, what I thought of around, the reason why I thought it was the Secret Service was also kind of a, a great problematic metaphor to bring in or the surveillance state um, is because of, I mean, when we think about now and the debate going on now around the coup at the Capitol, were the police infiltrated by white supremacists or did the police arise originally as, you know, as the arm of white supremacy. So, um, and there's, there's that sort of, um, historical, political, philosophical debate around the framing, but also the way in which, um, I think of something you've written about the camera when we talk again about neutrality and we're talking about, maybe we would think of the secret services only having our, the best interests of protecting people at, at heart and like the, the camera is a neutral technology like switzerland was a neutral country um you've talked about how the camera physically is um was designed the film emulsion from the film emulsions to the light meter to pick up white skin so that it is not something that um was produced to pick up black skin properly or or well and i wonder if it feels like another in a way it feels like another failing eye that maybe you're working against the way it fails both in your writing and in your photography and i just wanted to hear about that because um i i love that um the awareness of looking at looking i guess yeah, I mean, to begin with the uh, Secret Service agent and that particular metaphor, I'm, I'm glad we came back to it because now I'm questioning maybe the little bit of shame I felt around it and say, and I'm now I'm saying to myself, maybe the response is not shame, but awareness that I needed a metaphor for a kind of counter vigilance. And this is the one I reached for. The person who's in the room, who's looking elsewhere, who's not looking on stage, who's, well, who's looking at the crowd and trying to understand their intent and all that. Okay, why? Because those stories are available to us. Um, and I've, and I'll get to the question of the, the, the camera's vision in a second, and please remind me if I, if I don't. But let, let's sit with this secret agent thing. Um, uh, our, our discursive practices ar arise out of um, the mythologies in which we're immersed. In contemporary uh, Western societies, we read detective novels. We watch movies about cops, 
good cops, superheroes carrying guns, Secret Service agents, entire films devoted to protecting the president, um, entire TV series about cops solving crimes. These things educate our sympathies um, while uh, pretending to merely entertain us. Um, Rarely are these films exploring the question of why should, let's say, a president be surrounded by an entire phalanx of gun-carrying individuals who are there to protect his or her life, usually his. Um, it, 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 it proposes, but only implicitly, the question of is it the case that violence can only properly be preserved with further violence? Mm. Um, Why do some national leaders have uh, maybe one person in their security detail, some guy, you know, who also doubles at the, as the driver. And why do others need an entire sort of paramilitary unit? And I would think this is all directly related to how much violence that that particular leader is involved with structurally. Um, but the movies just teach, teach us that the president must be protected. The, the movies don't teach us about who the president, who must be protected from the president, right? Um, and in these films, the president is, of course, always presented as an innocent individual um, who's hated for some random reason, you know? Um, so, but I think what I'm talking about does extend to the innocent way many of us consume detective novels and crime series and all of that. It's just teaching us a way of uh, being in the world. Like, for example, in the world, there's such a thing as, quote, crime, which has to be solved by cops, you know. All of these things that get in the way of an abolitionist imagination, uh, which is really uh, where we need to be. Um, Okay. So I think there are better uh, metaphors for, let's say, optical vigilance. It just takes uh, patience, working on oneself and being alert to it. Um, I will say one more thing about that, that man in the blue cap and with the eye trouble in Every Days for the Thief. Um, that is a character that is in a way inspired and influenced by a recurring character in Krzysztof Kieslowski's Decalogue. Um, throughout that series, there are fleeting appearances by um, a young man on a bicycle. He has no narrative or structural role. He's just a witness. And for me, I immediately read him as a kind of angel. 
and he's something I often think about. So, um, the question of the emissary um, and the hope of being in contact with these emissaries is something that um, I sit with a lot because they see from outside the system and are not in a hurry to um, make a judgment that will um, compromise uh, the the process that's, that's in place, you know, which is a process of human beings figuring themselves out. Okay, um, so now we turn to the cameras. Um, and I, I like the way you describe it, that the, the camera itself is a kind of you know, optical operation that has uh, uh, flaws, uh, that has a kind of, um, it's an optical operation that has a kind of um, limitation by design. Um, and I think that's very much uh, the case. And I think it's something that is really not being um, uh, dealt with uh, by photographers, photo editors, the photo industry. Um, I think people are very interested in being innocent. They, they do want to say, well, I went to this place and I took these marvelous photos. Um, and they don't want to deal with questions of how did you come to have the opportunity to get to the, go to that place? Who is there? What is the relationship of your power to their power or their lack thereof? And who are the images being made for? And um, in what way does that perpetuate um, power imbalances? Um, and I'll just end that train of thought by citing something strange that um, I saw in the past day or so, um, I think one of the people arrested in the assault on the Capitol, uh, which um, I don't know what it is technically. I don't know if it's a coup. I don't think it is actually. I grew up under coups, but I, I think technically, you know, it, it, it might, you know, it's an insurrection of some kind. Um, but in any case, that's all terminology. One of the people who was arrested had been claiming to be a journalist and clearly was there in some kind of uh, journalistic role, taking in, making pictures, you know, recording to a certain extent. But I think this person can also be heard supporting the action. And so I did not read very deeply into the article, but I think the claim that's being made is like, you clearly support them. You're not a journalist. Um, and the unfinished thought I had about that was, so what does that make every American journalist who was in Iraq? Um, every British journalist, all of whom, well, not all, almost all of whom were there on a tacit or explicit form of, oh, we obviously support our troops, but we're here to document. You know, how is that different from 
these people leading an assault and having within their ranks people documenting that. Just asking, you know, just wondering about that. Right. So when you have an ABC news camera or a Washington Post photojournalist embedded with the troops uh, in, in Afghanistan, um, that person's a hostile party from the point of view of combatants on the other side. Our understanding of journalism is that no, that person is not. Uh, and we have a lot invested in maintaining the innocence of such persons. Um, but the violent reality is that they are part of the enterprise, specifically if they're embedded uh, with the troops. They, they are part of the uh, war effort to the extent that they are also participating in its propaganda. Jenny Erpenbeck, in her um, in her speech called "Blind Spots," which is about the refugee situation in Europe, connects the ear to the eye in a way. When she says, "Listening is an art," it is a risk because those blind spots hide our own guilt and impotence. It's perhaps an awkward um, pivot to use this connection of the ear and the eye. Um, but my next question is sort of lighthearted. Thinking of listening as an art, talk to us about your playlists and tell us a little bit about what that's doing for you. Because it's something that is enduring. It's one of the most delightful things across time, this temporal project of this amassment of these this incredible archive of of music that you've curated for our benefit well thank you i'm 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 very glad to have you um as a listener um even though spotify is such an inconvenient um place in which to present uh these playlists i think the playlists are publicly offered forms of secrecy um somebody out there in the world puts on headphones and they're hearing music that I haven't made. But then they hear the next song and the next song. And that order has been determined by me. So I'm inviting them not into what a particular song is doing. I'm inviting them into the experience of, say, an hour. Which is exactly the same hour that I experienced inside the time of the playlist. Right? Um... And I think much like radio or like a podcast, it becomes a way of curating a common experience that is being ex that is being um, encountered in one in isolation. It's it's collective and isolated, much like the way we live now. Um, one of the things I really enjoy, though, about doing the playlists is that. You know, as you suggested, this is something I spend a lot of time on, and it is an absolutely non-paying part of my labor. Um, there, there is an element of collective service to it, 
but there's also a very salutary element of uh, non-compensated service uh, that is happening there. Um, it's it's non-monetary. Um, I really think under our current systems, people should be paid for their labor, and yet it can very much come as a relief to have carefully put something together from which absolutely no financial benefit in any shape or form could accrue. Um, and so in that sense, it feels like uh, a real genuine gift, both from me to the listeners, but also from the listeners, because it takes the generosity of others to spend time with what you have made. Um, so I, I, I would have, I'm glad you asked about playlists because I would have to say it's one of um, my own deep consolations and one of my great joys. Um, by the way, they're not that easy to find just because of the way Spotify is set up. Uh, people who search my name on Spotify will find a bunch of fugazi, uh, as in like made up stuff uh, by people who are not me. But if if you go to my website, tejukol.com I actually have the playlist organized on there and people can uh, find their way from there so maybe as a as a final extended question as someone who's a border crosser and a breakdown a breaker down of barriers between spaces I wanted to read a couple things that you you said and then ask you a question in one enciphering corner of my mind I believe still that every line in every poem is the orphaned caption of a lost photograph. By a related logic, each photograph sits in the antechamber of speech. And you also said, at times I feel as though the photographs and captions in Blind Spot have escaped from a novel named Open City or that there are things said here and which belong here that first belonged in known and strange things. The property of being distinguishable is independent of the property of being distinct. I can distinguish between my practices, but that doesn't mean they are distinct. And then lastly, more than form or genre, what interests me is the secret channel that connects the work to other work. Tarkovsky calls it poetry, this link that allows different kinds of excellence to understand one another. Nothing that remains solely within its genre succeeds as poetry. When I work, if everything else succeeds but the poetry fails, then everything has failed. By this definition, it feels like you already write poetry. But I know you are a deep lover of poetry. And I also know in reading your work, which where the prose is becoming more distilled over time and spare, you've created a desire in me to read your poetry. I, I was just curious if we might ever get Teju Cole poems. <laughs> that's that's very nice, David. Um, well, if I might ever, that's that's a large question because I don't <laughs> I don't know where the ever will take me. At the moment, I. I read, a, I read a lot of poets and it's possible I've cited more poets today than, than writers of prose because that's, that's a place where um, 
those 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 are the streams from which I, I, I'm fed. Um, I don't plan to be to become a poet in part because I was thinking about the wonderful uh, violinist Hilary Hahn, and I was thinking. You know, somebody like Hilary Hahn is so good at violin. If she took up cello, she'd probably be pretty good as well. <laughs> I mean, right? But yeah. it would it would also kind of be a shock. Like, why are you taking up cello? Like, why don't you just keep getting better at violin? Um, I think she would. She's not going to take up cello because she has too much respect for how difficult it is to play cello, and she knows it particularly because. She plays violin. Um, and meanwhile, while she's playing violin, she can do a lot of things with it. Uh, all, all kinds of music and collaborations and composition and all that. Um, I think that poetry is very difficult to write. And I think if I put my heart to it, I could write some pretty good poems um but i ju- i th- i just have too much respect for not just how difficult it is to write poetry but that to do something much better than competent in any field requires years of work familiarizing yourself with the problems of that field and accumulating a certain number of failures and and getting a certain amount of imitativeness out of your system as well as a certain amount of unproductive innovation. Mm. So it's both that you have the risk of resting too much on your models and the risk of being too original. It takes years to figure all of that out. Um, Well, as a poet in the Tarkovsky sense, because I think you are a poet in the Tarkovsky sense, as someone who allows different kinds of excellence to understand one another, I, I just feel a great gratitude for your, your poetry, your work as poetry the way you connect me to the past, the way you connect me to uh, ancestral knowledge, the way you connect me to the present moment, the way you open my eyes to new new work of art or to other ways of seeing the political. Well, I, f- I feel very, very moved by that and abashed by it and very grateful for it. You know, the goal, I mean, as I said in that passage, is to try to find a way there. And it's so hard to find the word for it. And maybe because I admire poetry so much, I had to like lean on that word without wanting to claim to be a poet. Um, I'll, I'll claim it for you. But <laughs> I, I can propose a, a slightly different metaphor. Do you know about kintsugi? Um, yes. Yeah, so uh, Japanese joint, joinery, uh, basically golden joinery. Uh, you take the shards of a broken pot and you repair it with pieces of molten metal so that when the thing is restored, getting us back to repair, 
you have something where the brakes are very absolutely visible. Sometimes it's made of gold, so that what's most visible is where they joined. Sometimes lead. Uh, so let me not claim gold for myself, but let me claim lead. I want to try to be like the pieces of lead joinery between all these things that I care about. Um, and, and, I, and I truly feel when there's a photograph that I've taken that works, it does feel like I have recovered a fragment from somewhere. And when I have a, 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 an essay, um, you know, let, less often so a book, but in, in, the, in, the, in, the, in the larger arc of all these things, everything now seems to be a search. It, it, something f got broken primordially. And I'm responsible for gathering up the fragments in one particular section of 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 the shared house, um, one fragment after another, and just sort of like joining them, um, so that what is presented has all the seams uh, visible, and then you know. Um, And if I'm never a poet, that's that's fine too. You know, um, the world has so many great poets, and uh, why why just go out there and then be an ordinary one? Yes. Yeah. Well, it was extraordinary having you on the show today, Tejuk Cole. Well, this was um, a very rich blessing for me in a in a, in a time of trouble in in our in our shared world. So, thank you, David. I I was really looking forward to this, and it was yeah. good to be here. Me too. Right. We've been talking today to the author, Teju Cole. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was not recorded at the studios of KBOO, but at the volunteer-powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. You can find more of Teju Cole's work including his wide and wondrous world of Spotify playlists at tejucole.com. Teju also adds a three-part reading to the bonus audio archive of John Berger, of Etel Adnan, and finally of a letter to John Berger that is part of Teju's as-of-yet unpublished essay collection, Black Paper. If you enjoyed today's conversation head over to patreon.com slash between the covers to learn about the various benefits of becoming a listener supporter from joining conversations that shape the future of the show to bonus audio from Teju Cole, John Keane, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, Carmen Maria Machado, N.K. Jemison, Nikki Finney, and Laylee Long Soldier, to becoming a Tin House early reader, receiving books months before they're available to the general public. All of this and much more can be found at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. Don't forget to check out Johanna Hedva's new book, Minerva, the Miscarriage of the Brain at smingsming.com.
www.tinhousetin.com. I'd like to thank the Tin House team who helped make this show run as smoothly as it does. Elizabeth DeMeo, Elisa Ogie, Spencer Rukti, the book division, Jacob Valla in the art department, Yashwina Cantor, the publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the Summer and Winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank Imre Lodbrog and Barbara Browning for creating the outro. Their album, Imre Lodbrog, A Sapatita Mi, can be found on iTunes. And Barbara Browning's trove of ukulele covers can be found at soundcloud.com slash Barbara Browning. Thank you.